if you microdose, that's not necessarily anything that they would be able to test in your system. So, you know, maybe you find kind of ways that work with your comfort zone. I do think it affects people to feel like they're being secretive or bad. I think all of us essentially want to be good and don't want to be in trouble or be being the bad kid. Um, you could contact the Santo Daime, the ayahuasca church that's legal in the United States. The DEA has, you know, authorized as being a legal church. I'm Harmony Williams, and this is Life Changing Trips. Sometimes it's hard to see the freedom and the beauty that lives behind the weight of everything we carry. But I believe that life is so amazing and I can't waste another moment. I'm so excited to be here with you for another transformational conversation about experiences and the latest research on plant medicine, meditation, breath work, and other unconventional modalities and how they are being used for mental health and expansion. I hope by listening that you will find ways to integrate your peak experiences and epiphanies to open up new levels of possibilities, ingenuity, and fulfillment in business and deeper, authentic connection and passion in your relationships and a feeling of purpose of living fully alive. Okay, today we have Leo Russell. This episode is for you. If you're interested in the entheogenic movement, so that means psychedelic if you're not sure, and the legalities, what you can do to help to decrim or legalize. So in this episode, we cover three things. We talk about teens, drugs, legal plant options. So I think she mentions five different legal plant options on here and the legal organizations in the U.S., that administer ayahuasca and psilocybin. Two, we talk about what you can do to forward this decriminalization and legalization movement and how close we are on that. She's very familiar with like the Washington and Oregon area. Also, we talk about how to do a microdosing sit-in, and finally, what psychedelics have to do with the zombie apocalypse. If you are in the southern Utah area, we are doing a sound bath, breath work, meditation, January 12th, and that'll be a great place to come and have community, meet people, and really just tune into your own intuition. Get a good set up for this coming year ahead. In February, we will be meeting again in Southern Utah and doing a salt ceremony. This was one of my favorite things we did last year. We had about 25 people and we really got to know each other and just feel what we'd gone through a little bit in the year before and connect and set our intentions for the next year. So if you are interested in any of these events, we're going to have monthly events, then hop on to the Life Changing Trips Facebook group. You can DM me and I'll send you a link or you can Google it. And we post about it on there. You can also get on our mailing list too. That's in the links. We have a lot of really neat things planned this year that will be coming up. So if your heart is calling it, if you're interested, we will be doing those monthly events and also some Zoom calls and just more community stuff, connecting online and processing, integrating some of these experiences that we've had. And hopefully we'll get a couple retreats in the books too. So 
Can't wait to see you in person and get to connect and meet you all. Okay, so Leo Russell is a licensed family mental health therapist and substance use professional. She previously led Decriminalize Nature Seattle and currently leads the Political Action Committee ADAPT Washington, which focuses on legalizing psilocybin and decriminalizing entheogens in Washington. And she also leads Entheo Society, a 501c3 focused on education and community in the plant medicine space. Hi, welcome everyone. Today I have with me Leo Russell. Thank you so much for being here, Leo. Thank you. So she's running a legalization effort in Washington state and a national 501c3 that's focused on plant medicine, community, and education. I'm really excited to talk with you. You've got so much knowledge, so much background here. And I think first, can you explain to us the work that you're doing with those two efforts, with the legalization and then the education and community around plant medicine? Sure. About three years ago, I got really into leadership with the psychedelic effort for decriminalizing entheogens, specifically psilocybin, but two others in Seattle, Washington. And so that was about three years ago now. And I was leading the uh, decriminalized effort there. And after I finished my time leading in that organization, I had simultaneously begun a 501c3. So I was working nationally with the deep effort for entheogens, but I wanted to create our own thing, which was a 501c3 called Entheo Society. And there's currently an Entheo Society of Washington, but there's also a national Entheo Society. We're looking to start a Entheo Society branch in Hawaii, but that's based on plant medicine, community, and education. And about two, two and a half years ago, I began the, the political action committee ADAPT for addiction, depression, anxiety, and psilocybin treatment. And that originally was just a medical kind of effort, like 109 in Oregon. And it has morphed in the last year to include the decriminalization of entheogens, which is a a similar model to the initiative that was passed in Colorado this past year. Oh, you are doing a lot. (laughs) That is a lot. Oh my goodness. I love that. That's a lot of my listeners do struggle with some of those things, the depression, the anxiety, addiction, all of these different things that are so, so common. And that's part of my mission is just to help people be able to have access to what they need and even know about it. Really, my podcast is just like, hey, you may not have known what this was because you were trained up on the egg frying and the frying pan. And you thought, since it's in the same legal class, that it's the same as heroin and cocaine and psychedelics are not the same as heroin and and cocaine. And I didn't know that, believe it or not, until I was 40 years old. So that's part of my efforts is just like, Hey, there's other options out there that you might want to responsibly consider. And the, the hope and dream of mine would be that this is something that could be legal for all. And we can help educate people on how to use them intentionally and be able to help people with, I mean, lots of my own loved ones, right. And myself with some of these 
plant medicines. So thank you for the work you're doing. It is not an easy job. I know from going to the LGBTQ gala in Salt Lake City that the work that's been done in legislation on that, we can't just have volunteers doing this and ruining their health, taking time away from their family. It's an effort that needs to be bigger. It takes time. It takes money. And people are like, why money? Because somebody has got to do all of this work and this paperwork and this time and put it in. And they can't just not be compensated for that time, right? So I realized, oh, okay, that's why it takes so much. The government needs to hear stories. They need to understand what it is. They need to have their paradigm change. There's a lot of work being done. So in the legalizing part of that, what's the bulk of the work that goes on in that? Fundraising and also building the momentum, you really need to have a large volunteer base. And plant medicine people can kind of be, some of them, I don't mean to typecast, can be kind of flippy, dip, you know, hippy dippy or just kind of uh, maybe drifting in and out of the organization. So it's kind of pinning down those psychedelic cats. And I think it takes unique skill set to do that. But in Washington state, we had Hemp Fest, which was the largest cannabis outside festival in the world for about 25 years. And Vivian McPeak uh, was the head of Hemp Fest, and he's a, a mentor and a friend of mine. And you just see that it, it does take a lot out of you. He has a lot of health issues. So you can kind of see what that lifetime of just giving can do to folks. But a lot of it is just paperwork, you know, filing a political action committee, having a treasurer, forming a board, meeting with political figures, trying to network, but really building your base. And then your success ticket is going to be the fundraising piece, which for us is about three to seven million. And we haven't raised that. So it's, it's, you know, a challenge. Just the other day, I met with a woman who handles kind of like the politics of Microsoft for Washington State and British Columbia. And she's willing to help us. And sometimes I hope that like, well, someone that connected at Microsoft that high up would probably be representing some of those IT folks, because a lot of those IT folks are benefiting from psychedelics very much a culture of trying to get the most out of their brains and really see their brain as a tool. So I'm, you know, I'm hoping for a big donor any day now. Yes, I love it. And if not, that's, that was the next question is like, how can, can individuals, how can we help? And further? Sure. Well, I think, I feel like my way of survival in the plant medicine, like leadership perspective is to play the long game right? You can see that so many things are changing. You can see that the politics of it all is changing and people's sentiments are changing. And so I try to stay in touch with like all demographic groups and really try to understand the other. So, so I just think it's, it's really important to always think outside the box. When you think about huge social movements in the world, a lot of times it's been art, you know, art has this fantastic way of pushing us farther and getting us to question ourselves and laugh at ourselves and promote acceptance. So because I wear two hats, I'm not just the head of this political action committee, but I'm also the head of this fun organization that gets to be silly and push the envelope and so forth. When I'm getting tired with my adapt hat on and I'm going, oh, I'm not getting anywhere and it's just kind of boring and people are stagnating and it's not moving forward, then I throw on my Entheo Society hat and I say, let's have this wild party or let's do a big, a big fun event or like a comedy show or something kind of crazy, you know? Yeah. That community. How is that like building community? I mean, what does that do for you? What does it do for the people 
that are in this. I know we're, we have a little tiny community. We're just starting in Southern Utah and it feels like, I think people are still like really here scared to even talk about it out loud or to, you know, feel like, oh, I don't know if anyone else does this or knows this. So how is it? Have you seen the benefits of community? Well, I think that people can be far more radical in their social justice work with psychedelics than they realize. And so I try to push people out of their comfort zone. Last year, I held the, you can look it up in the media, but I held the world's first uh, microdose mushroom protest in downtown Seattle. And we had between 200 to 300 people and we had Native American speakers and uh, musicians and DJs and artists and political figures speaking. But for anyone that was like, you know, I'm sure the government was there checking in on us. But if you looked around, you saw like hippies and old grandmas and grandpas. And the government is never going to spend money to drug test a bunch of people that are sitting around in a park. So you could be in Utah with your grandmas and grandpas saying we're having this wild and crazy because it sounds so provocative, wild and crazy microdose mushroom sit in. But it's basically people sitting around like they would on Prozac or something else, just sitting there doing their thing, watching the music or eating their popcorn or hanging with their friends and talking. So there was nothing wild and crazy about it. And we did it right in the middle of downtown because we wanted those business people that are walking to their daily, you know, boring office job and wondering when they can get off so they can go home and Netflix binge or what have you. We wanted them to see these folks doing something wild and crazy, but it really wasn't right. And I, <laughs> I tell people you can do that all around the world. I'm trying to get a microdose mushroom sit in in downtown Vancouver, BC and so I really, I think it's also about figuring out your demographic, right? When I was living in Seattle, that's a very poly, very drug positive, very vegan and, and socially conscious and liberal environment. What I found was that the conservatives in our movement didn't feel represented. They didn't feel heard. They didn't feel connected with, you know, where were their values being represented, so we've had different people from the conservative side of things, the conservative movement that are pro-plant medicine that see it as like a libertarian issue. And so the more you can partner with those people and do educational events in those communities, that's where those seeds are really going to make a significant difference. And I would imagine Utah has a lot of that. Yes, yes, very. That I, I love that. I had never really thought of that. The main religion here in Utah is Mormonism. And I met this beautiful young Mormon woman and she was taking people to Peru to do ayahuasca and they were all Mormons, you know? And I'm like, yes, you go. You have that ability to speak to them and to help them just all of us be a, be a part of it instead of you and me and us and them. And I, I love that. So I, I'm glad you mentioned it. What do you think these, it's just raising awareness, like your microdose protest. Is that what the purpose of it is? Well, the, the media is going to do its own damage with whatever its narrative is, right? So the powers yeah. that be don't want these plant medicines out there. And so a lot of times what you'll see in the media is this kind of really amped up story that this is scary or this is something that can really it, it's something to fear right so there's a lot of fear energy that's projected out there into the the media kind of experience i think it's really important to change that narrative 
and I and I'm seeking to say, change the psychedelic narrative on a lot of different levels, like I said, including conservatives and uplifting conservative voices. But I'm I'm interested in uplifting lots of voices that don't get heard. But the idea is if like I mentioned before, if you're you're struggling in your movement and then you throw art into it or you throw something that sounds very triggering and very very dramatic, right? That can get people very excited because I think people kind of live for drama. We're very geared to live for drama. So when you hear microdose mushrooms sit in, you're like, oh my God, it's Woodstock and people are going to be naked and there's going to be flowers painted on their bodies. This is going to be crazy, you guys. Let's get down there and check that out. But when it's grandma and grandpa down there sitting in their lawn chair, right, with their little cooler and you're like, oh, these are people that are pass, you know, pacifists and they're they're nice people and they volunteer at the food bank and you're like, oh, that's my grandma. Then, then it doesn't get as exciting, but you've started to change that narrative. And it also, it takes a little bit of vulnerability and I want my volunteers to get pushed out of their comfort zone, right? I don't want them just like stuffing envelopes or something. I really want them to do something. And so you could chain yourself to something. I know people that chain themselves to the DEA's office in Washington, D.C. to raise awareness about the laws that are in effect that basically bar people from from healing themselves. Right. And that's very good and very dramatic and what have you. But I think we could do that in mass without going to the government, go to the people. Right. And mm -hmm. show them in mass the diversity and the color and the flavor of all these varieties of people. You've got Native Americans, you've got libertarians, you've got public figureheads, you've got grandma and grandpas, you've got kids. And you can see that these people are happy, loving people that just want to help other people be happy, loving people. And so it's a, a movement of good, whereas there's so many movements in the world that are movements of, of separation or anger. And I think there's a different energetic resonance when something is, is advocating for good and advocating for healing. Yeah. I, I love that. Yes. That's the purpose of my podcast is to get, change that narrative. And for people to see, like, I mean, when I first thought of it, I was like, who am I? No, I'm just like, nobody, who am I to have this podcast? I'm just like a mom, but that's kind of the point is I'm, I'm just a normal person. I'm not this crazy drug addict or, you know, this hippie or this, you know, whatever that people tend to think of when they think of LSD or mushrooms. So that, yeah, if anyone in our community wants to help start something like this and we have a big thing at the park and it is pushing the comfort zones. Like I told you, some of the people just at our first meeting, I mean, there's no substances. We don't tell anyone where to get substances, you know, but yet people were still tentative about just being there and just talking and sharing and integrating with each other. So, so I, how, but how I encourage people is say, you're not going to get, you're not that the government is not going to be able to drug test you and positively show up with a drug test for a microdose. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, and so your, your chances of getting hurt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. That's cool. And then as far as education, so let me know just like what you think is most important in educating people. And then you said you have some suggestions for people and that's a, that's a perfect one leading into that. Like they aren't going to, they can't drug test you. This microdose is not going to show up on anything. I don't want to be giving, I already have my legal disclaimer. I don't want to be giving any legal advice or mental health advice or health advice because I'm not a doctor or any of those things, but yeah, just some suggestions as far as that education around safety and legality. Well, I think, 
I've, I've been on both sides of the movement. I've been on the decrim and on the legalization effort, and now I'm and I, now I'm working on both. I I think it's really important to talk about safety. And the more I'm in this field, the stronger I feel about safety. So I started off leading in the decriminalized space. So I'm not sure if you have read the key to immortality, or I forget the name of the book, Brian Murakushu's book. I'm, I'm no, I've I'm, just yeah, barely heard that mentioned. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, just slaughtering his last name there. But if you watch this interview with Joe Rogan, he talks a lot about how these plant medicines were literally used at the dawn of time for all of our main religions. It's kind of like the source or inspiration for connection with, you know, what we might call God. And so because if like connecting with Christians, like I'm actually thinking about doing an event talking about the use of psychedelics in in Christian history, because I think that that might appeal to folks that come from that background and from that perspective and who are very interested in, in Christian history. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that having people grow and they change, and hopefully we can demonstrate that in our own learning and how we can change. But I've gotten to a place now where I, I do recognize even more so that people are entering realms, like if you take acacia, for instance, that's something that was used by the pharaohs in ancient Egypt. And that was used by the priestly class, just by like the pharaoh and, and his family or her, or, or the, you know, the Nefertiti or whoever's family. So it was only the most royal people of the most royal blood that were allowed access. And when you think about the power of some of these substances, like in this case, acacia, you know, you are entering another realm and you are communicating with an entity or a spirit and you're basically communicating with God, you know, if you, if you will. And I just feel like that used to be something in human history that only the Oracle at Delphi would do, like only this very protected and guided and kind of exalted position of leadership and and holy knowledge would be allowed access into those realms to talk to God. So I'm not saying that it's not something that everyone should necessarily have access to, but I think a lot of people, if they're entering a realm, a different reality, they, it can alter their perspective of the universe forever. And, and, and I would say primarily for good, but I, I don't know that some people can handle that. It's so heavy and it's so big. And so I think the more we talk about it, the, but it, but historically it was something that was kind of like secretive, like, you know, the, the priest would have it for the Pharaoh. And Aristotle and like Plato were brought, or Sophocles were brought by like a woman that took them off to do ergo or what have you, that to the hallucinogen that's similar to LSD. Like, mm. but it was like the priestess woman. You know what I mean? It wasn't like your average Fisher woman that was like offering you a pill at a party or something. So I do. Th- there's also beliefs around demonic possession that I I do think there is some. Uh, truth to that, which is that, you know, the Catholic Church believes in exorcisms, the Jewish faith believes in exorcisms. And that means that there are people that are actively in those religions working with demonic entities and exercising demonic entities from people. I do believe that sometimes when people go into these psychedelic states, they don't realize that they're opening portals to other, you know, universes or other spaces and, and that they could get things attached to them that they don't even understand. So again, does that mean that I think it needs to be reserved for like the holiest of priestesses and we have like a cult of witches that are allowed to do psychedelics after initiation, you know, 12 days of fasting, who knows? 
no, but I really think we need to talk about these are some very powerful medicines. Yeah. Yeah. At least nine days of fasting. Just kidding. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> but yeah, they are, they are definitely powerful. And it's it's interesting the the more experienced or experienced facilitators that I have on, the the topic tends towards like all safety. And of course me, I want to talk about possibilities and it's really good that I get to hear all of the, the safety and the reasons why that you need to be careful and you need to have a support system and you need to have a guide and all of these things that they're, they're telling us because they are very powerful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So as far as legal safety, is there anything on that end you've probably seen a fair amount of things <laughs> and maybe you you're more familiar just with Washington and Seattle area legality and the legal landscape there but anything you have yeah I would I mean I would encourage people to check out APA APPA Association for Psychedelic it's like basically making an effort to have a universal kind of safety and conduct protocol for all psychedelic facilitators across you know the world or across our United States so APPA my friend is the chair of that I think people are oftentimes more comfortable with legality and I think it's really important to meet people where they're at so I don't push decriminalization kind of moralizations at people that care about a legalization what I tell everyone is the reason I pursue legalization and decriminalization is that there's going to be Jan that has her friend Barb in rural Washington state that wants to do mushrooms. And her friend is like, oh, well, we can do mushrooms. Let's go in the woods. I used to do them in the 60s. It's great. And she doesn't want to do that. You know, she wants to do it with a doctor or a nurse. And, and that's mm -hmm. her right. And when we talk about people's right to heal themselves, it's just really important to meet people with where they're at. So I see sometimes some shaming in the in the community where people are like, oh, you're for decriminalization or you're for legalization. And it's like, it, I think there needs to be both. Until we're ready to overthrow this capitalist system, we're going to have the medical model and the decriminalized model move forward. And so I think the best thing is to kind of have a marriage of both. And that way, if you feel comfortable, you've been doing mushrooms since you were a teenager and you feel very comfortable and you feel like you can handle it and you know how to grow them and what have you, then I don't want my laws to enforce what you've been doing for the last 20 years and you've clearly been taking care of your body. But I also want there to be the opportunity for someone who needs structure. And I don't think we need to shame people for that. And as far as taking the risk legally, I think people can have beautiful experiences with Blue Lotus. That's a legal kind of hallucinogenic experience. People can have legal experiences in Utah, to my understanding, with salvia. For me, salvia is a very, very strong psychedelic and has a lot of female woman energy to it. And in Mexico, they really saw it as like Mother Mary, like a spirit of like a female deity that they associate with that energy. So I think people can experience those things if they can't afford to travel. And then they can also travel, you know, within the United States to a, a city where it's decriminalized, where they might feel safer or to a state where it's legal. Yeah, I think every individual has to decide for themselves, like if it 
feels safe for them to do it in their community where they could face legal repercussions. I think more and more I'm part of a legal group where attorneys are volunteering their time to help people that might run up against any kind of legal issue. Like let's say you were using it ceremonially or medicinally for you or helping someone with end of life care with using plant medicine. I think we see more and more like social justice warriors that want to stand up for people that are trying to heal people and can't wait for the laws to catch up. But I also think, like I mentioned before, if you microdose, that's not necessarily anything that they would be able to test in your system. So, you know, maybe you find kind of ways that work with your comfort zone. I do think it affects people to feel like they're being secretive or bad. I think all of us essentially want to be good and don't want to be in trouble or be being the bad kid. I agree. Um, And so, I mean, there's, you could start a church in Utah, I'm sure. I know several people starting churches right now, plant medicine churches, Mm -hmm. so that you might feel more protected. You could contact the Santo Daime, the ayahuasca church that's legal in the United States. The DEA has, you know, authorized as being a legal church. And I, and I actually have the head of the Santo Daime American church on my 24 hour event that's coming up, but I used to be more part of that church, but you could ask them about starting a point is what they call it in Utah. And then you're legally able to do ayahuasca. That the DEA had approved. There's two legal ayahuasca churches and they've been legal. Like I've been involved in one for like over 10 years, but it's been going for like 15 or so. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And here we have, I know in Utah, psilocybin church that's been around for several years, the TDA that we cooperate with in some of our meetings. So there are some options there and some ways to, I I like that because I, I agree that if you're feeling like you have to hide it and it has to be, you're doing something bad and wrong. I just think it's going to really affect the way you approach out all of that. If you're not feeling like totally aligned and, and in tune when you're doing this, that it is a it would be like a child loving its mother and giving, getting lovies from its mom. And you're having such a beautiful moment with your mom and you're getting all this love and you're like, oh my God, life couldn't be better. My mom's just giving me so much love. I just, oh my God, I just want to crawl inside her body. And then someone's standing beside you and like hitting you and saying, you're doing bad, bad, yeah. bad things. And you're like, what? how could this be bad? This feels wonderful. Yeah, exactly. I love that. <laughs> so cute. Okay the leadership archetypes thing, you, you just piqued my curiosity. I'd love to touch on that. So I started this group, Strong Women in Psychedelic Politics. It's about 1700 women. It's only a Facebook group and we've done a bunch of podcast interviews. So feel free to look for us, Strong Women in Psychedelic Politics, SWIP. And I just want women all, all over the world to really feel like there's this thing called entheogenic feminism, which I believe is like the next wave of feminism. But the concept of entheogenic feminism for me, as I've defined it, is it's not just a kind of a liberal white woman's thing, right? Or a liberal woman's movement. It's for men that are allies. It's for trans women. It's for really looking at individual women's stories, conservative women's stories, you know, and that there's a place for everyone And it's also not into like shaming. A lot of times you see in the plant medicine movement, people are like, oh, that guy did something bad or that that person did something bad or what have you. And so the whole idea of indigenous healing is that if you are in the village and you do something to wrong someone in the village, let's say you murder someone or rape someone, 
the original kind of tribal perspective is that you are me and I am you, right? And I think that psychedelic medicine teaches us that. So that means that whatever toxic sludge we've shoved off into some area of the world, you know, that is going to come back to us through global warming or what have you. So we can't really shove away these people that are kind of diseased and broken. And my background is social work and mental health. So I've worked for a long time in government systems that are very broken, but a lot of them are based on shame. Even 12-step can be based on shame. And so we don't get better with that energetic vibration of shame and we're not motivated to yeah. change. We're motivated to change when we feel loved and we feel included, even if people don't like our behavior, that they care about us and that they see us as an essential member of the human family. I love this message. Okay, keep going. So I really want entheogenic feminism not to be kind of with the PC movement, you see a lot of like people being very moralistic with each other. They're like, oh, that man treated that woman horribly or he took advantage of her. And it's like, okay, well, let's welcome him to the family and remember he's human and and we will encourage him to take accountability, but he's not going to do that until he feels loved and trust, you know, to put down his guard, you know, so we're not going to shame him into what, hating himself even more? (laughs) Like, was that the idea? Right. So once he hates himself, is he going to do worse better or worse right no you're just you're just increasing that bad behavior but within entheogenic feminism i i like to look at different like demographic groups as far as women because i personally believe white women in this country specific to the united states have a very unique role in human history right now because if you look at the history of the united states it's primarily for the white woman been like kind of like the slave master's wife on the plantation. You know, she's not supposed to touch Buck, the black man who's in the slave quarters. She's estranged from her black sister down in the slave quarters, but she's also estranged from society, right? She's isolated. She's like that housewife and so forth. And we're kind of culturally having this movement now where the black people from the slave quarters are standing up for themselves and going to the the master's house and demanding justice, demanding freedom. And that's great, right? But who is meeting them at the door? It's not the white male slave owner, right? It's the wife that was sent to the door. So I feel like the white women out there that are getting really caught up and feeling like super guilty for like, oh, you know, we've done these horrible things to people of color and so forth. I would argue like, well, you know, you were their property until about five minutes ago and you only had voting rights about, you know, in the scheme of things like, you know, 10 minutes ago. So you really haven't, and you haven't acquired land or money. And if you look at the world's wealth, it's like 85% owned by men. So you're not really making a lot of these decisions. In fact, you've kind of been screwed, you know? So I think it's really hard to have those conversations if people are not recognizing that white women their experience is not the same as white men's experience. The white man has traditionally told her, listen, you're, you're with me. You got to stand with me. I actually think white women do better kind of standing on their own, standing uniquely on their own. Oh my goodness. Is your, one of your books about this? I'm writing a book about my experience in the psychedelic movement. My other books are the black sheep manifesto, which was um, about my grandmother dying and offering her cannabis and my family's reaction and what does it mean to be the black sheep what i see right now with the psychedelic movement is a lot of these people are going for their healing retreats right Mm -hmm. and then they're coming back to these disease family systems my background is family therapy so these people come back to the the diseased family system after these great realizations in peru with their shaman what have you and they say hey family aren't you excited i healed and i i finally addressed my trauma and uncle ricky actually molested me and you know so they're stirring up trouble and they're like don't you guys want to get healed too and work out your stuff and talk about your stuff and the family says no 
The families don't want to shift or change. And so then what these people in the psychedelic community are experiencing is an isolation from their families, is a black sheep experience in their families. So I wrote my book, The Black Sheep Manifesto, and I think a lot of people in the psychedelic movement can relate to that just because they're losing connections based upon if you're leveling up, if you're healing, those around you sometimes want to drag you down. They don't want you healing because that means they're forced to heal. And then my other book is Yes, That White Woman Wants Your Baby, Stories from the Field of Social Work. And that's after years of working in Indian child welfare. I worked in family treatment court. And so I would, as a social worker, I would ding mothers for having like a positive UA for cannabis and say, oh, well, she can't see her kid this weekend. You know, she popped a positive or whatever. But I was going off on the weekends to do my ayahuasca church that was legal. So it made me feel like the biggest hypocrite in the world, but also... I just saw so much racism and classism in the child welfare system and was going through a difficult custody battle myself with my son. And I, I just really felt like I could never tell the moms whose kids I was taking out of their homes, like, Hey, I understand that the legal system doesn't always tell your story that you might've had a crappy public defense attorney and that the system is kind of geared against you. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like both awesome books. That is so fascinating stuff you're talking about. I know I I just had this one experience that kind of relates to that, where I went to this little day spa in Las Vegas. We'll promote it here. You know, it was like 35 bucks, the Imperial day spa all day. And, and I, we were in these kind of like jumpsuit things. I don't know. They gave you clothes. So you didn't sweat in your own clothes, I guess. And I felt like it looked like prisoner clothes to me. (laughs) I don't know why. And I just thought, oh my gosh, it's like, what's his name in the, in Theogen? I can't think of it. It'll come to me right after this, where he talks about, he was working with these children who had been abused or molested and everyone has pity on them. And then they, he was working with adults who were getting convicted and doing these crimes. And he's like, these are the same people that never healed. You know, they're, they're the, the kids that never healed from their trauma. And they're doing these things that we're incarcerating them for. And, And I was like, oh my gosh, if we could actually like help those people heal, I mean, before they're in the prisons, preferably before they're doing those things, but even in the prisons and show them, you said this earlier, like show them love and show them compassion and say, how do we help you heal? And here, come to this place where you can meditate and you can be safe and we can work through this with you. It was just like, oh my gosh, I know my kids feel this way too. Like we're doing it all wrong. We just got born into this crazy system and and there's so, we could do so much better, but hopefully we all can make our little mark and change change the world however we can. And you're definitely doing your part. Well, you remember on TikTok or whatever, whatever that Tide challenge was where people were swallowing Tide, tied pellets anyway it was a thing that these kids were doing these teenagers and they were dying right but but what i saw from that in our as a cultural phenomenon is that teenage boys maybe teenage girls too maybe uh, less teenage girls but who knows uh, that whole rite of passage is something that historically was built into cultures to kind of navigate that period between teenagehood and adulthood And a lot of these moms and dads are very concerned with these young men in particular that have risky behavior and get into drugs and drinking and things like that. And, you know, with my own son, I connected him with a healer from the Amazon when he was a teenager and they did combo together, which is another drug that you could offer that is legal, that that you could 
as a way to build comfort with a different altered state mm -hmm. so that people can see plant medicine can be healing, safe and transformative, but not illegal. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be one of these other things that are considered illegal. But for my son, that was so transformative. And that really knocked him away from like cannabis use and things like that, because it kind of cleans out the system and gets rid of, rid of any demonic entities and things like that, that can clutter a young person's mind. But what I was going to say about the zombie apocalypse is that the, the Walking Dead series is like one of, if not the most popular TV series, like in the world. And you have to ask yourself, what is it that's so enticing that that has such popularity in the world's population for a TV show, right? It probably brings together people that are very intellectual with people that are not very intellectual or who are not very smart, but they all like the storyline. And I think a lot of us care deeply about a world that feels very fractured and a world where violence is very common and getting more common. And a lot of people, especially conservatives, feel like, you know, the Chinese are going to attack us any day and Russia is working to nuke us. And, you know, just like all these horrible things that are potentially on the horizon as far as World War Three. So you see a lot of that prepping culture alive. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at something like, well, what happens after the apocalypse? How do we reform society? How do we recreate civil you know, order and humanity, right? What is it that makes us human, right? It's our stories. It's our connections with one another. And what I really love about this show is that in the show, it doesn't matter if you're gay or trans or black or really dark skinned black or young or old or, you know, handicapped or anything. No one cares, right? All they care about is if you can help with the situation, if you can help survive the zombies, and that's what kind of the United States, I feel like, needs to unify us. You know, it doesn't have to be zombies, doesn't have to be like Russia or China. But I feel like the psychedelic movement has a real opportunity to teach about love and acceptance. Right. And I feel like we see so much division in the world that that I think for psychedelic leaders, there's a marriage between the, the spiritual and the political. And that's where I think people are, are trying to navigate right now is they're, they're venturing into this healer territory and then they're like, oh my God, this feels political. How do you do both? And we haven't had healers that were also, you could say Martin Luther King Jr., but we haven't had healers that were political leaders, right? That were saying, I, I believe in prayer. I believe in spirits. I believe in God. You know what I mean? I believe in psychedelic states that are otherworldly. And I also believe in, in, average normal everyday things and and leading and and trying to be grounded in reality so i think we haven't had that so i think it's just a interesting situation because i think we're going to see more of that when you think about the oracle at delphi she ran europe for like hundreds and thousands of years maybe and she was the strongest person to lead and she was behind all the emperors of that region and so forth and she took psychedelic medicine altered her state to divine you know whatever the oracle would you know say but my point is is that she was mystical she was a witch and she was also the most powerful figurehead and i think that's kind of where we're headed is that we're gonna see people that i mean just right now from an astrological perspective we're in the same time period with the same kind of transits as the french revolution and the american revolution which were at, at time periods that had a lot of like 
let's overthrow the Kardashians and bring out the guillotine. You know, <laughs> I think people are really ready for authenticity. I think they're really ready for reclaiming their power and no longer being like, oh, the more likes you have or your $30 billion jet that we can all salivate over. Like, I, I think we're getting done with that and people are looking for something more real. They just don't know what it is they're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's interesting from the astrological point of view. I know like reading the books about the third wave and the fourth wave and just how, how these cycles repeat that we're definitely in that it's time. <laughs> it's kind of, it's, we're in that stage. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. So there we've tied the zombie apocalypse into psychedelics. I love it. But we could be working together like the zombie apocalypse now. We don't have to wait for the zombies. Yes. That's, that's we don't have to wait for the zombies. We don't no, have but to we could, first... we could just be like, oh, Tom, you're this fierce conservative. And oh, Larry, you're this flaming gay. Like, great. Let's, you know, fight the zombie. But it doesn't Yes. <laughs> I love it. So good. Okay. Before we wrap up, can I ask you a few questions from some of our community? Have some questions for you. Sure. Okay. So the first one is... Do you think that decriminalization can happen nationwide, as in like no federal statute? You would need a federal statute because it's it's any federal laws that are passed for all of the United States would be considered like a federal statute. Got um, you. So well, there I is guess no federal statute against it, I guess. Oh, well, yeah, and I mean, I it. mean, folks are working on that. There's actually a legal case right now to get access to like end of life care for people that's that's headed to the supreme court mm. it might be in the lower courts right now but it was just submitted and that's a, like a whole document claiming like people for people that are dying or ha who have end of life like needs that they have the right to heal themselves with medicine or benefit from this medicine and then there's another political action committee in washington dc that's working on changing legislation now am i a little bit maybe uh, curious about sometimes what you'll see is stronger legislation for le legalization efforts because you know uh, companies like Compass Health or what have you are working to support those kinds of efforts behind the scenes because they hope to make um, a profit. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, but as far as like a nationwide decriminalized effort, I think it's pretty much individualized at the state level right now. I don't know of any national. Effort. Yeah. Okay. The next question, should there be a regulatory agency to manage who is allowed to administer these substances? Or like, do you think there should be certain requirements in place and authorization to administer these? Or are you more on the side of everyone should be allowed to have them? That's a tough question for me because I mentioned earlier about how these medicines are so strong and that historically they were used by the most holy people and like the most royal people. And I think it's because it was like a fiercely guarded secret to be used by kind of the most holy. And, and when we're making it available to everyone, that means that there's a lot of people that are going to have access that are potentially unprepared. I don't have a lot of faith in the idea of certifying people from a like a governmental perspective, I'm I'm part of that in, in terms of trying to get some legislation passed that would include the right to the right to give medicine and, and be in a clinic setting for that. But but I, I've just seen so many kind of bad players that are psychedelic healers that for me, this is just my perspective. 
I think I think it's very hard to find like a really good person that that really is going to be like a good match for you and that really is kind of owning their own stuff and not projecting their stuff or demanding that you worship them. I've just met a lot of people with very large egos that are mm-hmm. that are healers and so forth. And for me, I love the idea of the apprentice model, right? So at some point, what I'd like to do is create an apprentice model because I don't think that it's a cookie cutter thing. I think there's different styles that I would say come from studying the shaman or the witch doctor or whatever that you live with them. I once lived with a medicine man in Belize and studied entheogenic medicine from the bush with him. And I just feel like that experience means that I went to the school of Mr. Palacio, right? I lived with him in the jungle with his family and that was a remote setting and I was there four months. And so I just feel like I'm into the idea of the apprenticeship model. Um, I like that. I just, I've seen so many therapists that have gone through like normal therapy programs that I don't see as being very good therapists and doing more damage than good. And you see how pervasive talk therapy is. It's everyone pushes it on their kids. That's struggling. Like go talk to a therapist, assuming the therapist will be competent, which is you know, I haven't met that many truly competent therapists. A lot of times therapists are people that are very damaged themselves, seeking out their own kind of self-analysis through other people, to be honest. So, so yes, I'm supporting a, a legal framework for getting certified, which is like 200 hours is what 109 in Oregon has figured out. And you need to be 18 and above and not have any like sexual predatory things on your record. And you don't need to have like, you can have a GED or a high school education. So it's not really like a classist gatekeeping experience but i think there are people that probably for whatever reason at 20 can be marvelous healers and there's people at like 80 that are horrible healers like i don't necessarily see it as age dependent but it's a complicated subject yeah definitely complicated i see the same thing where i'm like i don't want this just to be only and i i agree it, it if people want that great but only a medical model where it's just pharma and corporations and a sterile hospital is the only place you can do it if the doctors deem you worthy. And I also, like you, have heard stories, people tell me stories about facilitators that have taken advantage in one way or another monetarily or just given them bad medicine or all. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen, right? In the space and and sexually or physically or things like that when you're in this open space. So it's like, yeah, it seems like, you know, right now it's, it's if people who are going to going underground, it's just up to you to really be cautious and vet the people and have a whole lot of trust if you're, if you're going that route, but there are, yeah, that is a tough question. <laughs> I won't, I won't try and answer it either. <laughs> but one thing is, is that the Santo Daimi, even though it's underground, but you're able to find it, it, it does have structure to it. And I do see a different experience there. I saw people there that were mentally unstable, that were definitely lost and searching for meaning in their lives, probably didn't have a lot of friends, probably didn't have a lot of great, like intimate relationships. You know, some people might might say this person's a loser or they're just lost or whatever, but you would see them be held by the community. And if you think about it, it wasn't the act of someone doing something to you. If you go for a therapy session, the healer or the you know counselor or the shaman or whatever can say, oh, I'm doing this to you. I'm special, right? God's imbibed me with some special gifts and I'm superior to you in some way, right? But within the church dynamic, even though I'm Jewish, that dynamic did say God is doing this to you, right? 
the medicine, which is God, they saw it as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's doing this to you. They're mm -hmm. not seeing it as the person leading the ceremony is doing it to you. Mm -hmm. I think we lose a lot of our power when we give our power away to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm glad you mentioned that organization. I'm going to look it up because that does sound like they've been approved by the DEA. They've had some, some vetting and what would you call that recourse if they are doing something wrong kind of people could go and have recourse not just like some random person off the street right so yeah big topic that's probably like a whole podcast episode <laughs> right in and of itself but as we wrap up here is there just like a final message that you would want to share with people kind of wrap things up well, I think folks think about how to be an advocate, how to be a fighter for good on the plant medicine movement, how to bring it to other people. And I think sometimes we limit ourselves because we don't understand the audience, right? And the audience may not be ready to jump into an ayahuasca session, but you could offer them like a, a hit off a pen that is a blue lotus, right? Which is a, a ceremonial medicine like from Egypt. But also I think at the more psychedelics I've done in my life, the less I want to do psychedelics. I really want <laughs> to incorporate what I've learned and then do it occasionally. And, you know, I'm definitely drawn to acacia for a lot of reasons. But I think sometimes we, we just need to remember that it's sacred and, and just to honor that, that, that there's addiction in everything. So just to acknowledge, you know, that people need to be aware that sometimes plant medicine can be a way to not focus on ourselves. Yeah. You can still numb and distract and. Well, if you're taking, you're, yeah, you're taking a voyage in the spaceship and you're going off to these other galaxies. Well, maybe it'd be good to spend some time in your own garden. Just... Yes. Ah, beautiful. Beautiful. I will leave it with that. And I really appreciate your time, taking the time to, to chat with me today and give us all of this amazing information and advice. And now we've got them all peaked for reading your books too. So awesome. is there awesome. a way that you, would you like people to connect with you? We've got your links down below with the organizations that you're in. Yeah, we have a 24-hour event on the 26th of this month called All Things Jewish with um, the head of the Ayahuasca Church of the United States and a lot of other Jewish uh, speakers speaking to the psychedelic movement from the Jewish lens. And then and that's on Entheo Society. You can check out the link for that and, and Eventbrite. It's called All Things Jewish. We have an event that we did about a month ago called All Things Mystical, and it had all these people that are like have done like movies about a recent movie, in fact, about abductions. It was like UFOs, witches, like ghosts, just like, but from a psychedelic perspective, right? DMTLs. Cool. So that was a 24 hour event that we recorded that people are welcome to check out on YouTube by, by finding Entheo Society. And I'm currently looking to do an indigenous 24-hour event focused on indigenous folks in the plant medicine movement. So if anyone's interested in being a moderator, they can always contact me. But yeah, yeah. If you if you want advice on how to do a microdose mushroom sit-in, I'm I'm always happy to to give some suggestions. But that's yeah, it. maybe I'll be brave enough to brave enough to help organize that or or even bring it up just at our next meeting with the it's little group low cost, low risk, and it sounds wild and crazy. So sounds wild and crazy, but really isn't. Yeah, I was checking out the event, and there were some like 
really cool people that I wanted to check it out. The one, the 24 hour thing you're doing. Right. See if I can just read off a couple for the other listeners here. I don't see his name. Co-founder, director for the Center of Indigenous Medicine. I don't know. Oh, see- yep. R- Roman Hannes. Okay. Roman Hannes. Rick Doblin. That I think is who I was thinking of when I was telling the story about the the prisoners and the people in, incarcerated. I think he was the one I was thinking of. I don't want to ruin some other people's names here. Noah Dinodad Rubin, a local comedian, producer, therapist, and father. That's fun. But some really cool, as I was going through that, I was like, oh man, when will people sleep? Because they'll want to hear everyone. (laughs) Well, it's recorded. It's recorded. Oh, that's good. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. But it's like the idea is that with professionalism, there comes a lot of classism and, and racism and things like that. So the idea is that you see a lot of people that are very stressed out about being professional and kind of like having strict order. Mm-hmm. The 24 hour events are like a giant sleepover. So people will be in their bath. They won't be like exposing themselves, but they'll be like taking a bath or eating or sleeping or at the airport or whatever. But the whole idea is that you're comfortable. So if you're in your pajamas, like, the idea is that you're comfortable and the moderators are comfortable. So no one is stressed. Like that's and the main objective. The other objective is we're so used to giving all of our power to outside parties like the government, or even if you go to an event, they're like, no one can talk or no one can ask questions, or it's very tightly controlled. The yeah. idea, the idea being that we need to be tightly controlled in order to have order. I would argue that we are able to govern ourselves. We can totally handle ourselves. So there isn't a lot of strict control over the 24-hour events. They're very organic. And sometimes people argue and someone will contact me and they'll be like, are you going to stop this argument? And I'll be like, no, I mean, they'll, they're sorting it out. It'll be over in a second. Like, I think we're very disturbed by conflict. I think we can learn a lot from conflict and conflict's okay. So. Wow. So do do listeners get to participate or is it just yep. kind of a panel? Yep. That- so if you listen on YouTube, you do not. But if you join the Zoom call, which is available through the Eventbrite link, which is free, then then you're a participant and you oh. yeah, you get to contribute. And a lot of times people make friends or connections. It's, it's, tr- it's trying to build the human psychedelic kind of family therapy model. Nice. That is great. Okay. So this is November 26th to the 27th, 10 a.m. to 10 a.m., 24 hour stream. And I'm going to try and get this all up and edited as soon as possible so that cool. it gives people a yep. few days. And we'll be on Clubhouse on the Flourish Academy on the 24th at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time just to kind of talk about like, why are we doing this event? Like, what is this event going to be about? What are people going to talk about? And just like answer questions. Awesome. Thank you so much for putting these things together and having all this these resources for people. So valuable. Thank so thank you for being here. I appreciate yep. you. Thank you. All right. We'll see you. Okay. Have a good one. Just to wrap up, there are some exciting things going on in decriminalizing entheogens and legalizing them. So right now we have the DEA has approved the Santo Daime, I'm maybe saying that wrong, church for ayahuasca. And you also have options to legally use psilocybin in Oregon and Now, um, Colorado's has been decriminalized and they'll be rolling things out here. So that's really exciting. Um, She talks about several medicines that you can research some more on your own, but all of these are legal. Combo, hape or rape, salvia, blue lotus, and 
Then there's that one other I've mentioned before on the microdosing episodes, which is Kana. Make sure you still do your research. Just because they're legal doesn't mean they don't have any contraindications and that there are zero risks with them. There are still risks. They still have contraindications with other things. So make sure you still do your research. And then just a reminder, we recorded this previously. So she mentioned some events that were coming up. They have passed, but they were being recorded. So I, I believe there's replays of them. And then you can hop on into our description and follow Leo for future events. She's got a lot of cool things coming up this year. So follow her and I thank you for listening. Thanks so much for subscribing and leaving a review. Come join our amazing free community, Life Changing Trips. There's a link in the description. All content is for informational, entertainment, educational, and harm reduction purposes only. Life-Changing Trips and Harmony Williams and their affiliates and guests are not doctors or mental health professionals or legal advisors. Any information shared is not meant to treat, diagnose, or claim cures for any physical conditions or mental illness. Psychedelics and sacred plant medicines are not for everyone, even when done legally. There are serious contraindications with various health conditions and pharmaceutical medications. Please do your own research and take action to be informed. Remember that you are 100% responsible for your actions and subsequent consequences. The views of the guests are not the views and opinions of life-changing trips.